In 2017, I published a short book called Creep, A Life, A Theory, An Apology. In it, I interwove personal narrative and cultural analysis to explore what it means to be a creep. I drew on my own personal experiences growing up gay in the Deep South, where I was often made to feel that I was a creepy kid in the 1980s. But I also looked at examples from literature and popular film and media to see how people who are identified as creeps are often viewed, sometimes with horror and sometimes with sympathy. After all, who among us hasn't felt a bit creepy at times? This podcast draws from stories and examples in my original book. In these episodes, we will explore different aspects of what it means to be creepy. A warning, don't be surprised if you're listening to this podcast. While for many of us, the specter of the creep can be threatening, it can also be a bit exciting. Exciting perhaps in the possibility of threat. Yes, we get creeped out, but we are also fascinated by creeps perhaps in part because we all sense the potential inside ourselves to be creepy. Part three. My father, you might be wondering where he's been. If I've delayed in introducing my parents more fully, that might have to do with my retrospective sense of them as largely absent from my childhood. Of course, that's just patently bullshit. Nothing could be further from the truth. They were around all the time. But I've had to contend with the fact that walking in circles around and around a tree alone in a playground full of kids, I experienced my childhood largely by myself, and then increasingly picked on and bullied, teased and tormented in school. Now, that only made me feel even further outcast. I don't wonder that I spent some afternoons tying myself up. My father, though, he did show up one day at my school when I was in seventh grade to talk to the principal about the bullying I was experiencing. I was called into her office, and there he sat. I don't know if the surprise I felt was felt at the moment I saw him, or if I remember surprise through the years of all the times he didn't show up, or both. I do remember going through the door and pulling up short when I saw him turn around to face me, the strange, lard-headed outcast child he'd come to somehow protect. I wondered what he was thinking. He was in his work clothes, taking a half hour out of his day to stand up for the son who had elected to turn the other cheek when he was bullied. Did he, my father, did he resent being there? Or is that resentment all mine, a backwards feeling into this encounter that stands out for me because it is so anomalous, so not how I would experience my father throughout most of my life? I learned from my mother years later in my late 30s, after my father had died, that when I was born, my father wondered if I was actually his. I must have been a monstrous-looking baby. But that little revelation, whatever he really thought, just learning of his suspicion, that allowed me to see my childhood in a glaringly new light. His distance, his lack of engagement, his coldness, they all started to make sense. I don't ever recall playing with my father. I remember him once drying my hair and my sister's hair after a bath. We must have been eight and four. 
He took the towel, roughly drying my hair, and then, taking both ends, rubbed it furiously across the back of my neck, giving me a brush burn. I yelped out of his reach. To this day, my body stores tension in my neck. To be sure, my father showed up for the typical things, like graduations and, and also my wedding. But by the point that I was getting married the first time, I didn't really know what role to give him in the actual ceremony. Years later, after I was already divorced and starting to date the man that I would eventually marry, my second marriage, my father called me up on the phone, it's the only time he ever did, to ask if I believed in God. He was dying of Parkinson's disease, slowly, devastatingly, losing one bodily function, including his mind, after another all the while taking my mother, his only caretaker, down into despair with him. By that point, I didn't believe in God, not in any conventional way. But I was taken up in the strangeness of the call, its truly exceptional character, a, a one-of-the-kind and probably never-to-be-repeated event. And indeed, it wasn't. So I stammered a reply. I said, if there is a God, I can't imagine that he wouldn't be full of forgiveness, even if only for having made us and allowing us to suffer so much. Indeed, if he had any moral sense, this God, and if he wasn't completely psychotic, he should be asking our forgiveness. <laughs> In retrospect, I wonder if I wasn't really talking about my father having made me. My father seemed satisfied with this response, and the tremor in his voice, the dual shaking of body and heart, a, a soul sensing its own imminent demise, seemed to still a bit before he hung up. I must have been a profound disappointment. Why else would he have turned away from me for so long, calling only when his own pain drove him to ask for succor, from someone he had pretty much largely ignored for most of my life. Am I misreading that phone call? To this day, 20 years later, I don't know. Maybe that call was the respect and love he'd always felt, but couldn't show because of his own damage, his own emotional stuntedness. I don't know. But that's telling because I know next to nothing about him. He married late in his early 30s, and yes, that was late for that time period. My mother was 24 when she had me. I know he came from a large family, eight brothers and sisters, and that he tried to dodge the draft during the Korean War. Not out of any sense of peacenik protest, but because, well, shit, who wants to go to war? He worked most of his life for the power company. He drove a truck, and if you didn't pay your electric bill... He was the one charged with turning off your power. He hated this job. He was often yelled at, cussed out, sometimes attacked by dogs at their owner's command. He tried to cheat his work, coming home in the early afternoons for long naps while still on the clock. He was eventually caught and told he'd be fired if he were caught doing this again. He took his resentments out in other ways, such as going to discount clothing stores on the weekends, buying name-brand shirts and then taking them to higher-end stores and, and returning them as unwanted gifts for cash. <laughs> Something you can't do anymore without gift receipts. 
I actually admire the ingenuity he had, even as I'm left wondering what drove him to feel he deserved to cheat others. We barely knew his brothers and sisters. There was a crazy one subjected to electric shock treatments in the state mental hospital, having gone around the bend after much of her body suffered third-degree burns in a mysterious house fire. There was another one largely toothless. There was a fairly malignant one. There was a younger brother who disappeared. There was another aunt I only recall meeting once because she got the fuck out of southern Mississippi, married and had children, and made a life elsewhere. Right after 9-11, she started mailing my father and one of his other brothers very threatening letters, demanding payment for therapy services to deal with the trauma of having been sexually abused by them. Everything was denied. A lawyer consulted. The letters ignored. The correspondence slowly stopping. It was all, in a word, creepy. At least suggested dark secrets from a past slowly creeping into the present. To this day, I don't think we're quite sure what the truth was. I had little time as a child, though, to meditate on my parents' varied and potentially sordid pasts. High school was generally a horror for me. There's little other way to say it. I went to an all-boys Catholic school where I believe I got a solid education, was introduced to a slew of good books and literature, and found a couple of teachers who encouraged my writing habit. But I faced nearly daily traumas of harassment, bullying, and abuse. I was immediately marked as the class fag, and I was verbally taunted all four years. Even some teachers apparently understood me as queer, sharing that information with students. I, of course, had made no such declaration. I think I barely said a word out loud. You have to keep in mind that this was the early 80s in the Deep South. People just weren't very openly gay. I never knew another gay person except for an uncle that I'll talk about later. Now, surely some of us suspected that a few of the brothers who helped run the school and actually lived in separate housing on campus, well, we suspected that they might be queer. And I even heard from some students that one of the brothers in particular would diddle students on various academic tournament trips out of town. But this was all well before the priest abuse scandals were made public, and also before the relatively widespread depiction of gays and lesbians on television and in movies. Being in Louisiana, the 1980s, Reagan's America, the Deep South, and in a Catholic school, well, homosexuality was just not discussed, unless it was discussed to be condemned. Even talking about it seemed dirty, unless you were identifying someone as a fag or faggot to ostracize him socially. And that person was me. P.E. was a particular torture. I never showered on high school premises. Now, to be fair, not many boys did, but I'm not going to lie here. For all of my deep shame at the time and my sense of horror that I might possibly, in fact, be a faggot, I was still a kid going through puberty. As I was surrounded by other boys going through puberty, I'd inevitably try to sneak a look at some of the boys changing in and out of their P.E. uniforms. 
We all wore briefs. In fact, the coaches oddly insisted on it or a jockstrap. And to this day, a lean, muscled man in tidy whities seems wonderfully erotic to me. I remember the Marky Mark Calvin Klein underwear ads. <laughs> they posed a particular challenge in public for me. I tried to resist gawking at them in the early 1990s. I didn't want to out myself on city streets as a real creep. But wait, 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 wait. More briefs, I remember. I remember intimately interwoven into the narrative of my adolescent sexuality. <laughs> Still the 1980s, at 16, 17, I snuck into the movies to see Risky Business, my first rated R film, and oh, I knew immediately that I wanted Tom Cruise. Well, <laughs> not so much from the scene of him dancing around in his tidy whities although that was pretty good, but the later one in which he's calling the prostitute while lying in those same briefs in his bed, pulling his goalie mask down over his head while he touches himself. Fuck, that's hot, even now. I instantly had a crush on Cruise, and... Top Gun, coming out just a few years later, seemed like pure porn to me. I hunted out other movies he starred in or even just appeared in, including The Pretty Wretched Cocktail. When he was cast in The Color of Money with Paul Newman, Life magazine put their pictures on the front cover lying head-to-head, -head, and I bought a copy, poring over it secretly, relishing the article for glimpses into the actor's life. God, I, I think I still have that copy of Life. I remember at school, college this time, studying alone in a classroom for a psychology test. I went up to the chalkboard, writing out some notes, then erasing them and writing, I love, and then holding back from writing a name, but quickly scribbling TC before wiping the board clean. And while my interest in Cruz has since faded and I haven't kept up with his filmography. That whole Scientology thing is just weird. I remember seeing him in the opening scenes of Vanilla Sky. This would have been years later. But I remember seeing him in those opening scenes, standing bare-chested in front of a mirror, searching for a gray hair before yanking it out. I yelped along with him, recognizing in the late 90s that I too was starting to get older. Cruz is a few years older than I am, but close enough that tracking his aging has been instructive for, for me and for my own aging. How does one get older gracefully? And is that really the goal? Grace? Besides Tom Cruise, I had my first real crush on another human being in high school during sophomore year. Domingo. <laughs> we are Facebook friends to this day. He was so fucking hot. <sighs> Though I'm not sure that I could have brought myself at the time to that exact articulation. It being, you know, the 1980s, Reagan's America, the Deep South, a Catholic boys school. No, no, no. I was far too busy trying to deflect attention from my sexuality. I was denying that I was indeed the faggot that everyone seemed to think I was. So, so my sensations about Domingo seemed, even to me, vaguer 
less definable, but still, still surging. He wore a hot pink undershirt with a button down over it, barely tucked into his sand-colored khakis, and he frequently sported a peacoat in winter. He was Latino, but very fair-skinned, with a shock of black hair swooping over his forehead. He swaggered and was snide, quick-witted, and his friends were amongst the smartest kids in school. Now, it was assumed that I was very smart, too. I was bookish, bespectacled, literally egg-headed, quiet. But I didn't make friends with this smart set. They were all a little bit slick, sharp-tongued, well-dressed, generally good-looking. Uh, the categories of adolescent education. I, I look back and I think if only I'd found a way to attract the attention of these boys, that I might have found a somewhat safer harbor to weather the weirdness of high school. But at the time, it wasn't happening. I made some fumbling attempts to get to know Domingo and invited him over one time to listen to music. I had not thought of a sexual encounter. I had just wanted to be near him, perhaps wanted to be him. He came over, but he thought I was just showing off my musical knowledge. After all, I'd hide in my room most afternoons and evenings, licking my wounds by listening to music. I ended up knowing quite a bit about the classics. So our friendship, it went nowhere. And I pined silently, eventually consoling myself by, <laughs> by imagining tying him up and whipping his ass as I rubbed out an orgasm late at night. Who was I kidding? <laughs> of course I was a little faggot. But I was also deeply ashamed of being a faggot. I was so desperate still to hide, deflect, to throw off the scent of others, however unsuccessfully. I eventually ran into Domingo in college, where he and his friends had turned to evangelical Christianity. He's probably a right-thinking Christian to this day, though, to be fair, he heard gracefully my admission to him 30 years after the fact that he was my first crush. Teachers, well, teachers at the school, except for a very few, were useless. Uh, don't get me wrong, I, I think I got a decent humanistic education, perhaps with too much religion. And I still read some good books, including some surprising assignments like Ken Kesey's One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and Herman Hesse's Damien, as well as the usual classics such as Lord of the Flies. But most teachers seemed to turn a blind eye to the tortures I faced. I wasn't protected. And my parents, I think, just thought I needed to learn to man up and fight back. Certainly, earlier, my father had once gone to school to try to protect me. But the overriding ethos of the time was kids just need to be toughened up. Boys, in particular, need to be toughened up. And maybe, maybe the right response to my bullying was for me to learn to fight back. I did once. A kid took a small razor to me, wanting to carve fag into my arm but I slapped his hand away, and I might even have snarled. <laughs> I remember to this day the shock on his face. 
Perhaps that was enough to deter my fellow high school peers from more probing physical assaults. I don't know. But no, there was no real adult intervention forthcoming. In fact, in a strange way, the school vectored such assaults, not only through its religious condemnation of anything sexually perverse, the only sex education we got was being shown pictures of aborted fetuses, but also by publishing our phone numbers in a widely distributed booklet. Now, perhaps they thought this would build community. It did, but mostly amongst those little budding sadists and future wife and child abusers who would get together and prank phone call my house. Prank phone call actually seems seems such a mild way of putting it. One kid called my house and told my mother that I was going to be beaten so badly that she wouldn't be able to buy groceries for a while because my hospital bills were going to be so high. I walked to and from school in fear after that call. I think my parents might have alerted the school officials, but... <laughs> Hey, what can we do? You know, boys will be boys. They just say these things. And people thought I was creepy. In retrospect, I think I was abused, sexually abused. While next to no one laid a hand on me, my sense of self was warped by a combination of social ostracism, religious intolerance, adult indifference, and ceaseless bullying. If I were a middle-class kid today, my parents would be trying to sue the school and would likely be successful in securing a settlement. I've thought of doing such now. And for several years in my late 20s, coming into consciousness of how what I'd faced had not been just boys being boys, I would write letters and then emails to my old high school's administration. In part, my missives were in response to the periodic pleas for donations sent out by the school. Replying to one, I actually wrote the principal. He was a new guy, a layperson, not anyone I knew. And I said that I would consider donating money if the school set up a gay-straight student alliance. The possibility, though, was unthinkable for them, given Catholic doctrine. Is it any wonder that, for many years... I thought that anyone identifying themselves with Catholicism or Christianity were suspect. After all, they were aligned with a system of thought that, no matter their particular views on homosexuality, had contributed to the immiseration of countless millions for nearly two millennia. Fuck those fuckers, I'd think. Fuck those fuckers. You have been listening to Creep, the podcast. You can find the original book, Creep, A Life, A Theory, and Apology, at its publisher's website, punctumbooks.com. For more information about this podcast and other books related to Creep, check out www.thecreeptrilogy.com. This podcast is directed and produced by Hai Truong. It is narrated by me, Jonathan Alexander. Thank you for listening.